Hi, this is Frank Oz. I'm the director of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And um, this is particularly fun for me because I'm seeing this 13 years after I made it. This is 2001. So I'll be looking at uh, old friends and old memories here with you. Um, this opening, um, I, I love, I'm not saying that in a self-aggrandizing way, but I, I love it because it tells a story so simply that uh, and gives the tone of a comedy, which is tongue-in-cheek, and tells the story of uh, this con artist who we don't see. This is also in Villefranche. You'll see at the end of this uh, a harbor there, and Michael Bauhaus, this DP, lit the whole harbor in the afternoon, and we rehearsed this. We set a platform out on the opposite end of the harbor, and we rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and we had markings for the camera because we had to follow where Michael and the lady were going with these jewels. And we only had, I think, three shots, three times, three shots at this, because we wanted to get at a beautiful twilight hour. And um, I think this was our last, I'm not sure if it was our last or second take, but um, Michael did a beautiful job. He lit up the whole waterfront on the opposite side, as you'll see in just a second here as we pan up. And um, this is one of the most enjoyable films I've ever shot, partly because of the people, certainly, and partly because of the environment. So that whole thing was lit up by Michael prior to, in the afternoon, getting it all ready. All that stuff is rigged. That's not how it really is lit. That was just Michael Bauhaus. Now, Michael Bauhaus, I got to say, is a brilliant DP, director of photography. And um, uh, this look is really mainly him. I just asked him to make it elegant and beautiful, and he just kind of went with it. And all these things are mainly his decisions uh, as far as the look go. Of course, I. I looked at it, and as long as it was okay with me, I just let it go. He did a great job. He's brilliant. Um, one thing about this, we had to uh, scout this pretty fast, about five weeks prior to shooting, and Bernie Williams, uh, my brilliant producer, uh, who was very important in this movie, and, um, <laughs> and Roy Walker, uh, took a boat and scouted all up and down the French and Italian Riviera. And they were on the boat for a few days back and forth. And I was saying, geez, how can I get that job, guys? Uh, they were scouting for a good place to shoot this. We didn't know it was going to be in this place in the south of France. It could have been the uh, Italian Riviera. We wanted to get a place that was beautiful. And we uh, found, the, uh, found this area here, which is very, very traveled by tourists, but still uh, it was really accessible for us and a pretty good shooting for us. And this was the height of the tourist season. As a matter of fact, we shot this in, I think, uh, uh, June, July, August. And in August, uh, half a million Parisians always come down to this area. So uh, even though there's a lot of tourists, uh, we made it happen pretty good. Uh, this is in a place called Bouillot-Saint-Mer, I believe. Uh, this was an empty, um, I'm not sure what it was, empty something. And uh, Roy Walker, my, who was, again, just a, an ace, uh, the production designer goes, Roy Walker um, uh, just put everything in here. Now this opening, I thought about probably about eight months before we shot this. And again, we have not seen Michael's face. And it's just a nice way always to introduce a character to see their back and then have a dramatic turn like this, especially with a face like that. And then um, 
Michael and I fortunately agreed that we, as far as the uh, the hair and all that stuff, that we wanted it slicked back, not like Michael Caine is usually known, and a little mustache. So it's it's uh, it's worked out good. There's the great Barbara Harris. One thing I should say about this movie, it's very very important, uh, is that it was it was specifically made to look and feel like a 1950s movie. This is about a bet between two con men of $50,000. I didn't believe in the time it was shot, and certainly now, that there was that much um, trust between two con men. I think we're in a different world, a more complex world. So I needed to create a world, kind of a 1950s sheen to it, an old-fashioned movie, where you'd believe that these two characters would actually live up to their bargain of $50,000. Today, who knows what would happen with these guys. They'd kill each other, probably. So uh, that was important. Monsieur Andre, would you see what you can get? Now, this uh, outside scene coming up uh, <laughs> cracks me up. And again, it maybe cracks me up because uh, I'm the director of it. But I thought of this again. Uh, I tend to, when I, before I make a movie, I tend to visualize some things. And I visualized this. I just thought this would be cool. And I placed these three plants in those particular locations. And I blocked it in such a way that each plant was kind of a throwaway joke when she shoved into there. Uh, it just cracked, cracked me up. That's Anton Rogers there, who's uh, actually British. And uh, I did interview, uh, went to Paris and interviewed and cast, tried to cast uh, somebody French for this, but uh, Anton worked uh, really nicely. He was uh, terrific. Again, this whole movie is, was such a delight to shoot when you have Glenn Headley and Michael and Steve and then my friends Bernie Williams and then Roy Walker and the crew and, it, you know, you'd have, you wake up in the morning and go to work and have croissants by the, uh, by, by the ocean where uh, naked women would be. You know, you just can't beat that for a shooting movie. Again, this is the first joke, shoving against the the plant, which isn't a joke. That joke prepares for the second joke, and the second joke prepares for the third joke. So, um, of course, the main joke is Michael obviously playing over the top. Again, this is mo supposed to be that way, tongue-in-cheek, to create kind of a, a 1950s comedy feel. Um, so the first joke is, is obviously what's going on between Barbara and Michael. The secondary joke of these plants. You've already risked too much just in speaking to me. I still want to help. That's the second plant joke. Again, secondary. While Michael's playing it over the top. Michael uh, has a German accent later in the movie. And of course he has this British accent, and he's just so wonderful in both. He's what was a, what was extraordinary to me is that I always saw him as a dramatic actor, and this just uh, uh, this he was so smart in how he played everything in this movie. And of course, now here comes our last throwaway joke. Again, nobody else thinks this is funny. Probably I do. <laughs> Where she shoved against the last plant, and of course, I accentuated the plant noise to make it funny. Barbara played this so wide-eyed and innocent, and uh, uh, Anton played it so uh, desperately real. One thing about this location is we worked till, I think, 5 in the morning. And actually, that one decision to work till 5 in the morning instead of quitting at midnight kind of broke the back of the schedule, and we were ahead of schedule. This was not Barbara Harris's hand, This because you don't use a, an actor that, actress of that quality to do a hand shot. That was another actress's hand. 
There is a Ian McDermott, and Ian is such a fabulous actor. And I, my joke with him was that uh, I cast the best people to do the, the littlest things because he does very little in this movie, and he deserves to do more. He's brilliant. We bopped around from city to city. We shot in Cannes and uh, Bouissemer and Villefranche and Cap d'Antibes. Uh, as, as I said to you, it was a hell of a great shoot. <laughs> That's a Zurich sign, but it's not Zurich. That, I think, is somewhere in, in one of those small cities. Now, the introduction of Steve Martin here, um, I kind of like this shot because you usually, when you push in, the camera pushes in like it's going now, you think you're going to follow Michael Caine, but now we just went right past him, and this is Steve's introduction. Introducing the stars in this kind of movie, not a naturalistic movie, baby, but this kind of movie, this sheen, uh, is always fun when you introduce them in a particular way. Now, Steve, it, there's not much to say about Steve that hasn't been said. He is, uh, I've done four movies with Steve, and uh, here, he's not only brilliant as a comedian and an actor, he's brilliant as a writer. And uh, he and I actually did a lot of work on this script. Um, we... Uh, we slightly took it in different directions. We were playing around with it a lot. And as a matter of fact, when we approached this movie, we never had an ending for the movie. As a matter of fact, we shot for about two months with no idea of how to end the movie. And Steve and I would go into um, Nice, uh, I think to Universal Cafe, about a half a dozen times and work on the possible endings. We kept on trying endings and endings and endings. And uh, that, along with... Uh, Glenn's ability as an actress and Michael's suggestions, that's how we got the, uh, the ending that we have because we really were working on it all the time as we were shooting. But my, my feeling was that although I was unhappy with the ending as written, uh, I felt the rest of the movie was so good it was worth continuing on. Uh, this is, I'm talking about this when I was uh, accepting the movie as a director. I thought it was worth continuing on and I would just do the best I could try to make an ending work uh, as we're shooting. And of course, Steve, being the great writer he is, is the one who mainly uh, made it work. Again, um, this is a train, uh, not again, but this is the train set. And what's interesting here is, uh, not to you guys, but to me, is that if you look out the window on one of these, train, uh, on one of these uh, sections here in the scene, you see little lights go by in the distance as if you're passing farms or little communities. And those lights were actually about 10 feet away, and they were designed by both Michael Bauhaus and uh, I think special effects in Nice. We shot this in the studio at Nice. So if you rewind on the DVD and you see these little lights, there were two layers of lights because when you actually in a train and, you, and you're moving along, the lights don't move at all at the same speed because they're different distances. So they very cleverly arranged two or three layers of lights moving at different speeds to make it look like little communities in the distance. Again, this is uh, in Nice, in the Victorine Studios. I'm not sure where that shot is. I didn't shoot it. That was second unit camera. Another thing that's very important for me in this movie, and actually probably the most important thing in this movie, is what this movie's about. This movie is supposed to be about a con job, but to me, it's really not. This movie is about this, this relationship with these two people, certainly with Glenn Headley also, but mainly these two people. And I said to Michael and Steve, and I, and I, I think I, it worked out this way, 
that this relationship is on two layers. First of all, there's the two characters who are playing cat and mouse with each other, and the audience enjoys seeing them playing with each other. But I think the audience knows, or I thought at that point, that the audience knew Steve and Michael so well that the second layer was the enjoyment of seeing Steve and Michael playing with each other, kind of as two actors sparring. And that was kind of a double layer that I, I, I felt was the most important thing in this movie. Not necessarily the cons, not the script, the plot, such, but the relationship, the double layer relationship between Steve and Michael and, uh, and Lawrence and Freddie. Freddie Benson. Again, there's an example of the slow moving lights in the background uh, in, in, in this set here in Victorine Studios. I can't tell you how much fun this movie was to shoot. Um, any movie is really, really difficult to shoot. But if you're going to have a difficult time, you might as well have fun having a difficult time. And we had so much fun. Now, this, uh, this scene is really about these two guys meeting each other and setting up Steve's character is not that bright. <laughs> Anybody who talks that much, like, like Freddie right there, is not that bright. And uh, he is, the difference between him and Lawrence, Michael Caine, is that Lawrence is an elegant, big-time con man. And Steve is a small-time, nickel-and-dime con man. And that's what this scene is about, to show the differences in the two and the smartness of, of Lawrence versus the uh, Penny Annie stuff that Steve goes through. When, uh, when I work with Steve and Michael on, on scenes, this as an example, um, the joy of working with these two guys uh, is that you rehearse the scene maybe once or twice, and then you do it. Or sometimes we say, hey, let's just go ahead and do it. What the heck? But the joy is that I say to these guys, you know, okay, now we kind of have it. Now just go ahead and play. And they, they, they bounce off each other so well. And I didn't even know this was going to happen when we cast uh, Michael with Steve because Steve was on board first. But it was such a, a, a fortunate thing that the relationship within these two people, both Michael and Steve and Freddie and Lawrence, worked so well that we could uh, – that they're – probably ad-libbing in this take. I don't remember because 13 years ago, but I imagine there's some ad-libbing going on. And I, and I, I really, uh, I really kind of push that so this, each scene can, uh, each take in a scene rather, can be uh, as spontaneous as possible. And when you're dealing with two pros like this, um, it's easy. I think this is a, uh, oh, I don't know if that's Villefranche or not, but again, when you see lights like that, that just doesn't happen. That's uh, the director of photography doing that. This is, um, again, the great thing about where we were, Nice was our headquarters. And in the south of France, the small towns are very close together. So uh, I don't know exactly where that train station was, but I'm sure it wasn't far from, from uh, Nice. Now, um, here's Lawrence trying to get rid of Freddie. And uh, Freddie, of course, this is also another thing where Freddie's a womanizer and a small-time womanizer. He thinks women uh, fall to him. And, of course, Lawrence uses this. So this is just another way of getting Freddie out of town and showing how smart Lawrence is and uh, how not too bright Freddie is. Uh, how far up is Portofino? Portofino. It's about and this is 
this is um, actually in the train compartment, in the train station, I believe. So I, I think we probably had two sets made, or one set made. In other words, we used this when we were at the train station, and we used the set that was constructed by Roy Walker in Nice for the actual conversation of the two, if I'm not mistaken. One thing about uh, this movie is we were a week under schedule, and uh, which is pretty amazing, and uh, that is in great part to uh, Bernie Williams, the producer, and uh, Roy Walker and, and Michael Bauhaus. But I remember saying, them saying to me, not them, but the crew members saying to me, geez, Frank, of all the places in the world you have to be a week under schedule, why is it south of France? Because <laughs> you know? it was a pretty amazing place to shoot. You can afford to dismiss such amateurs. Surely it was no match for you. You can't be too careful, Andre. After all, a poacher who shoots at rabbits may scare big game away. Um, Michael, so suave there. I think he enjoyed this role very, very much. Now, I think this was Villefranche. You know, it's been 13 years. Um, but I think it is. I'm not sure. Could be Bouyesemer. What you just saw in the beginning were some boats and such. Usually in a movie, what you see is never true. And we brought some boats in to make it look nice for the background. So usually in these tr little things in the background, the trees and, and actually all the tables never were there. We just created that whole section there as a little restaurant. The widow of Lars Nudson, the Danish matchkeeper. I did have so much fun because having set up that 1950s feel, I was able to do much more comedically than you could in more of a naturalistic film. Uh, and this is, uh, it gives me more of an opportunity to be more tongue-in-cheek and a little bit broader in certain areas. And it was so beautiful there. As a matter of fact, there is what we kind of created. When I said we, there's so many small towns around the small uh, the south of France. We actually did go to all these towns we shot in Cannes and Nice and uh, Villefranche, and we are kind of saying the, that this town in which Michael lives is really a conglomerate of all these towns. In film, that's what you do so often is you can't find everything in one town, so you use a lot of different towns to create the one town in which your characters live. Uh, for those of you who remember, um, I think in the early 60s, there was a movie called, the, uh, called Bedtime Story. And uh, this is a remake of Bedtime Story. Bedtime Story starred um, David Niven as Lawrence and Marlon Brando as Freddy, of all people. So uh, when this was uh, written by Dale Lawner, uh, this is a modern take uh, on, and, and it was, it's different in certain ways too. On, uh, on bedtime story. One thing that's interesting is this location here, I believe, is the same location that they used in bedtime story. Uh, when Steve comes out of this, I believe Marlon Brando came out of that. I, I may be mistaken, but I, I'm not sure if it's this particular scene, but I do know that this location was the same they used before. That's Bernie Williams in the blue. <laughs> he got a, a quick walk on. Uh, he, that's my producer. That was Steve's idea, that little, that little swimming suit. So, so it just cracked me up that he would do that. He, it was his idea to, to look really silly like that. He thought it would be a, a ball. 
One thing I, I should say is that uh, the most power I ever felt as a director was on that day because we did two versions of this, uh, one kind of European version and one um, United States version. And for the United States version, you see this now. For the European version, uh, we didn't have uh, any um, bikini tops. So at one point, I, had, I said, okay, we got the, this version. Everybody offered their tops, and the women took their tops off. And I had more power than I ever dreamed in my life at that point. <laughs> of course, I come back an hour later, they probably hit me if I said that without any uh, film crew there. Now, this scene, which is one of my favorites, is just Steve going solo here. And it's Steve trying to remember, Freddie trying to remember. And what you don't see is me down at the bottom of the frame. Um, I'm kneeling down, and I'm there ready to touch Anton's foot or ankle when I believe Steve has gone as far as he could possibly go in his ad-libbing. And so when, I, when Anton interrupts Steve, it's because I just touched his ankle as a cue. Uh, I just wanted to make sure Steve went the distance and Steve it's exhausting Steve will always go the distance and this was I don't know what take this was but this was a tiring scene but it just cracked me up what Steve did it's just all ad lib Lawrence <laughs> I haven't seen this for so long and I I really love his performance here and I guess I now I about now I felt he had he went this distance and then Anton interrupted him yeah. yes we're like this So now, again, this whole cat and mouse thing, again, that we got Freddy out once, now Lawrence is trying to get Freddy out again. And uh, the, uh, the jail here, by the way, was in Victorine Studios in Nice. It was designed by Roy Walker, who actually, uh, Roy did the sets in Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, he's so brilliant, he's so ace, and I, I'd love to work with him again. As a matter of fact, uh, I asked Michael Bauhaus to do Little Shop of Horrors, and because of some complex union problems that were going on, I couldn't get him. So I was fortunate enough to get uh, Michael for, uh, for this movie. You notice um, Freddie's jacket there, and of course you notice Lawrence's outfit. Merritt Allen uh, did the costumes here, and again, this is all part of the, the contrast between the two of them, how loud uh, uh, Freddie dresses and how tasteful Lawrence dresses and um, Merritt Allen again uh, I realized did the costumes for Little Shop of Horrors which were uh, wonderful and uh, I don't know where Allen Merritt is now if she hears this I'd love to have her give me a call because she's wonderful <laughs> I love how Michael just carefully gently walks there like a very precious guy he's, he's just he's just wonderful or he'll submit your name to Interpol now, the next scene is kind of fun. This is the uh, uh, an exterior airport scene. You'll notice as they're walking up to the airplane, all the passengers going up the, uh, the steps there, uh, we don't see the airplane. That's not a creative decision. That's a budgetary decision. It was just too expensive to rent an aircraft there. So all these people are walking up the stairs and then have a ladder or more steps for walking down the other side. Now, I talked to you about the lighting effect in the train before, and Michael did another terrific lighting effect in this airplane. Uh, as you'll, you'll see when it's flying, the light moves. You know, this, as we're flying, as you're flying, often the sun will uh, cause 
uh, lights. See in the background there, see how the lights moving? That's all in studio, and Michael designed like that. That really gave such a such a feeling of uh, of being in a real airplane. Just that moving light. See on the back of her there, and you'll see right there. That's all Michael's doing there. See the uh, the I guess they're called portals. I'm not quite sure. Uh, the sun coming through there. Uh, besides having being a nice effect on the faces, it just makes it so believable instead of just a, a plane in a studio, which obviously this is. This is uh, uh, this is in again Victorine Studios, um, and that was built by Roy Walker. What was interesting here is we had such close shooting between the two here, so we had very little very little uh, room to shoot, even though we were in a set. So you can see how big the faces are there. So you have to choose your lenses very carefully. If you go too wide, it's going to distort their faces, and you can't go too long because you won't really have the room to, uh, to shoot them. So, but it turned out pretty good, I think. Barbara really played it very funny here uh, with this heiress. Again, this script uh, was originally... I'm sorry, the bedtime story script was originally written by uh, Stanley Shapiro and Paul Henning, and I don't think they're alive, but these guys were such amazing craftsmen. So when Dale Launer modernized uh, bedtime story to make it this movie, um, he had all that extraordinary structure, comedic structure that was built in by uh, Shapiro and Henning. And I believe they were also television writers and they were doing the Rock Hudson Doris Day movies so they had a tremendous wealth of, uh, of structural uh, talent. Now this villa here which is real and I think it's I'm not quite sure where and what town that is now I've forgotten after 13 years but we uh, were looking for a villa and I told you that Roy Walker and Bernie Williams were going up and down the uh, French and Italian Rivieras on a boat looking for, uh, for a villa actually and looking for a place to shoot we couldn't find one and I arrived and looked at places. We didn't have a villa. And finally, we found out, I think maybe by Bernie's prodding, through the local uh, scout, he said, well, there is one I didn't show you, <laughs> which always happens. And we went there, and I thought, this is great. So on the last second, we found this villa. And the reason I like this villa, you'll see besides how gorgeous it is, you'll see what, look at this here. This is stunning. And... Um, Besides the actual scenery, which is beautiful, what I liked so much about this villa is that it wasn't intricate. It was plain and white. It didn't have a lot of Rococo trim. It didn't have a lot of carvings. I wanted that villa to be a very blank backdrop for the comedy. So the eye would just sense it's a villa, but it wouldn't get caught up in the details. And instead, our performers would be the stars and not the beautiful villa. Because there are many beautiful villas there that are, that are rich in detail. I just think a blank canvas that you can perform comedy in front of, I think, is better uh, in this regard, anyway. All my life, I wanted to be the best. You just can't beat shooting in an environment like this. And fortunately, often when you're shooting, for instance, a villa, and you want a scene, uh, a scene where there's scenery, like you just saw, you have to go to two different places because often you say, "Well, gee, the, the villa's great, but there's no view." Or the view's great, but there's the villa's not right. So we were very fortunate to actually have the villa that we wanted with the actual 
scenery that we wanted, and it worked out great. What sort of an education did you have? <laughs> like, Freddie's attitude here is, is so great because it, the way Steve played it, because he's so small-time, such a small-time guy. <laughs> and Michael is just taking advantage of it so much as, as Lawrence. Now, what you'll be seeing soon is uh, how Lawrence is teaching Freddie how to be an elegant thief, uh, not thief, but con man, because if you're going to work in the Riviera, you can't be nickel and dime, uh, and you can't dress the way like Freddie dresses. So he's going to be teaching uh, Freddie how to be the con man that only works in, uh, in the Riviera. Uh, and... Uh, there's a scene coming up where it's kind of a montage of Freddie being taught how to be an elegant con man. And I remember some of we overshot. We had a couple of little scenes that didn't get in, but most of what you see is what we shot. Um, and the music, you listen to the music, because Miles Goodman, who has passed away, he's done about four or five of my movies, and Miles is such a good friend. But uh, I think it's putting on the Ritz. And... Uh, this was Miles' idea to have a Stefan Grappelli-like violin here, kind of an elegant jazz violin. And I thought it was a great idea for the whole movie to have this kind of elegant jazzy violin. So it was a bit contemporary. At the same time, it had that old world elegance. Uh, it was uh, just a great idea by Miles, and I, I sure miss him. He's, uh, he was such a brilliant, brilliant guy. <laughs> this whole montage cracks me up. <laughs> and again, we had so much fun doing it. Now here, teaching him to walk, to walk, I'm sorry, I haven't seen this for so long, it cracks me up. We just locked the camera off, and we had, had them just move it back and forth, and then I would have them move it back and forth. I would cut the scene, and I had them walking many, 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 many different ways, but we'd settled on those two shots as being the best. Again, Michael Bauhaus was a great help in locations because uh, he also helped me choose locations uh, that would best suit his, uh, his uh, lighting. But the fun of this is, again, the relationship between these two guys. And, and, and again, Michael and Steve playing off each other improvisationally. This is Steve's joke right here. Steve uh, is amazing. In every movie I work with him, he always contributes the uh, improvisatory nature of all this uh, meant that we had to shoot a lot of stuff and cut it way down. But that's the great thing about film, is you just use the, the best bits and pieces. Now, now, what's coming up is kind of the graduation within the montage. This is all set up here. <laughs> Sorry, that cracks me up. Uh, Steve is so brilliant, too, in this. What uh, the whole that was all set up preparing him for this moment, which is the graduation, the three of them sitting down and seeing the final test, which of course <laughs> Steve made up. Uh, I mean, I, I have a wonderful relationship with Steve where I'll, <laughs> where I'll say, Steve, you know, how about this? You think this works? And he's the one who come up with the ideas and he'll let me edit himself down. But most of these ideas are, are Steve's. And um, just, <laughs> just 
Steve doing all this stuff, you know, besides Steve being a brilliant writer, prop-wise and physical comedy-wise, he's so brilliant. So this was the final test if Freddie is ready to uh, work with Lawrence. And, of course, he passes. Well done. <laughs> I look great, don't I? I know the move. Now, the next scene you'll see uh, starts with uh, Lawrence's champagne glass uh, hitting on the table, which I thought was a nice way to just all of a sudden break the mood. And this scene has Megan Fay, who is a wonderful actress, and uh, I know Michael enjoyed her because uh, when we did this several times, I could just see them bouncing off each other. Terrific. This scene begins, uh, I think, a, a, a section of three scenes where they, as partners now, con three different women out of their money. Uh, and, uh, of course, this brings up Ruprecht, which is uh, a character that is so funny. Steve uh, had so many ideas for Ruprecht. He had so many ideas, and uh, it, we both agreed on which ideas we'd use, but we had so many more ideas than what you have on the, uh, in, in the film here. This is uh, not in the villa. This is another location. Uh, because we, there was no actual place that we could create to make this work here. Now, you'll see in a moment that they're going to go through the gate, and they go through the gate, and then we'll cut into the kind of basement tower where Ruprecht is. Once we cut to the basement tower where Ruprecht is, that will be in Victorine Studios in Nice, and that was all built. Um, it would have been difficult to, to find something uh, like that. And again, Roy Walker made that. So uh, here we go. We're going to be walking outside. And again, this is <laughs> this is uh, in, in the real place. I forgot what town this was. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, this may be the villa. You know, it's been 13 years. In any case, now we're going to walk here. And the next cut will be in the studio, a build. Here we are. And now, these are wooden floors here. They're supposed to be stone. So as in every movie, what we did is in, in post-production, we took out the sound of them walking on wood, and the Foley people, who create the, a lot of sound effects, they put in the sound of stone instead. Again, this is a great way to introduce something dramatically or comedically, when you prepare somebody by not seeing what you're going to see first. And, of course, it adds to the comedy when you see what you see. <laughs> the tire swinging just crapped, cracked me up because, obviously, he was doing that before we got to him. This, I can't tell you how much fun we had shooting this scene. And now we cracked up. And Michael was right in there, and he was suggesting things, too. Um, what we wanted to make sure with Steve was we didn't want to make sure, we didn't want to have anybody thinking that we were joking about anybody who's retarded. So we really kind of went over the top and made it childlike stupid uh, because that was the only intent here. Uh, and I think we were, it worked. <laughs> Again, so much of this is uh, improv by Steve and Michael here. If you look at the set, the toilet, the swinging tire. Uh, the set has so much to do with the comedy, too. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. You know, all I can do is watch this with you guys and laugh because I had so much doing, fun doing this. Lady. Mother? No, this isn't your mother. That mother? No. But I have Again, one. the hair was, I think, Steve's idea, as I recall. And we did shoot more jokes than what we have here. Uh, but it's not that they weren't funny. And the hard thing in a comedy is taking jokes out that are funny. And the reason you do that is mainly one reason, is to keep the pace going. So if we had more jokes, they'd be funny, but it would lengthen the pace and you want to get the movie going. And this is, this is, I remember this is Steve's idea very much, out of anger that his brother now has somebody other than him. Now, this next joke Steve and I talked about, should, should we, are, are we going too far? And we said, ah, screw it. No, we're not going too far with the rubber gloves. <laughs> no, Ruprecht. <laughs> That's where we thought we were going too far. Ruprecht, no. After that. We apologize. So now we've established in this scene that Ruprecht is the partner of Lawrence there. It also, we're also saying that after all that elegant uh, teaching that Lawrence is using uh, Freddie. And so it gives Freddie a reason to be a little angry at the end the way he's being used because he was taught to do something differently. <laughs> uh, and that's important to set that up. <laughs> Genital cuff again with Steve's idea. I remember that very plainly. <laughs> Don't worry, Ruprecht. We won't go anywhere without you. Now, the next scene was really interesting to me. This scene was shot in the villa coming up here. But I remember the day we shot it, I was not crazy about what was written. Um, it was a little bit too broad for me. I know in this movie it sounds odd to say that, but. Uh, he had had him, uh, Lawrence, holding a chair and saying, back, back. And we didn't know what we were going to shoot in the morning. <laughs> we didn't know what we were going to shoot. And um, this is Frances Conroy, who played a great straight person here. She's a wonderful actress. And around noon, uh, Steve had some ideas and said, you know, I used to do something in my nightclub act. And he showed me about the fake urination thing. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so a lot of this, at least half of this, was done by Steve and I talking. I'm saying, yeah, let's go ahead and do it, your ideas, um, which is not usually the best way to do it economically. That joke, the fork in the, uh, the cork in the eye joke, is one of the best jokes. And again, Steve thought about that. Brecht, we have wonderful news. Diana and I are going to be married, and we are all going to live in Palm Beach. Ruprecht. Pace-wise, because we've done two, I felt, pretty good scenes, I think real good scenes, in editing I decided if we go for a third scene that's long, that would hurt the pace. So this third scene you see is really kind of a capper with this next woman. It <laughs> that's the, ur the urination thing that uh, Steve told me about he used to do in his club act. And that's the one that kind of kicked off this whole scene. <laughs> In any case, you'll see that this here is not a scene. This is a capper to the, to the, uh, the whole sequence. Uh, because I, I, I felt the audience understood what we were doing, and now let's move on. So, as I said to you, by having Freddie do Ruprecht, 
and now the next scene where he's not getting paid as much or paid at all, I'm not quite sure, that will move the story along structurally, plot-wise, to allow us to understand why Freddy is going to go on his own. 15% for you, Andre. Nice work. And the rest is for me. I remember in the editing of this movie, we shot five and six. We shot five days, and then we uh, one week, and then we shot six days straight another week, and then I would night times uh, go with uh, uh, Steve Rotter um, and his second editor there, William Scharf, and we would, we would edit uh, in the evenings uh, a few times a week um, because really when you're shooting, when I'm shooting, I take it back. I, what I like to do is I like to edit as I go, see how the scenes are doing. And then if I screw it up, which I always do in some scene, then I can say to the producer, hey, you know, I say to Bernie, who's very understanding of that, I said, Bernie, we have all the material here, we have all the actors, I screwed that, that scene up. It's gonna be cheaper to do it again now, since we have the sets and the actors here, than to do it six months from now in post-production. So that's why I, I uh, tend to edit as I go along. Also, it helps me sense the pace in the entire movie as I go along. This is, I think, the Rothschild estate in, um, in the south of France here. What's the angle? There is no angle. I remember, uh, it, you see the background, the sky is blue, and just uh, having nothing to do with this scene, but I remember when we first shot in Cap d'Antibes, uh, it's always beautiful weather in the south of France, but of course on that day we shot, I could see out on the ocean a typhoon. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to stop shooting the first day there because it was just, you can't have a, a typhoon. It was way, way in the distance, agreed. But nevertheless, you don't go to the south of France for a typhoon. So uh, it's always that way when you shoot a movie. The weather is always perfect until you start shooting the movie. And something always happens. You ask any director that's all, or producer, that's always the way it is. Again, the genitals are framed uh, very importantly on the left-hand side, so we do a little throwaway here with, with uh, Steve. <laughs> Again, that was Steve's idea. I gotta, again, say with Michael Bauhaus, uh, all these locations were certainly chosen by Roy Walker, but Michael Bauhaus, uh, with the lighting of it, this, this movie, it made it so good. This movie could have been just kind of wacky comedy, but I, I was so appreciative of Michael giving this elegant sheen to it because that's what it needed. Now, this is Villefranche, and I know uh, everybody was laughing at me afterwards saying, you know, for God's sake, Frank, this is a big tourist town. Why don't you put any damn extras in there? And I didn't want any extras. I didn't want a lot of extras. And it's probably my mistake looking backwards, but I didn't want that many extras because I didn't want to lose Michael. Michael was a star, and I didn't want it to be a tourist town. I didn't want to be so many people, but I know it's a kind of inside joke with Bernie Williams and I that I said, okay, no, 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 no extras at all, no extras. <laughs> when obviously it's the south of France and there should be a lot of people. Now you'll see the highlight of my career coming up in a moment. You'll see, see this hat trick here in a second? See the hat trick? Watch. You'll just do a wonderful little tiny hat trick. There, I taught Steve that. <laughs> it's my claim to fame. I taught Steve that hat trick. I do great hat tricks. That's where my real value lies. Again, those sunglasses are just a comedic choice by Steve. This scene, this uh, shot coming up here, which I kind of like, is uh, it's one wide shot. When you see the reverse in a moment, this is, uh, we'll do a 180 reverse uh, after they see the girl. I kind of like the scene coming up, I'm sorry, the shot coming up, because 
they move into their own extreme close-up. You'll see, now they come in here, they're wide, camera doesn't move, now they come into a medium shot, okay? And as the bet becomes more intense, you want to get closer to them. But instead of a camera moving closer, I had them go one step higher into an ECU, extreme close-up there. See there? And I kind of like that because we didn't have to do it. They did, and it worked for the intensity of the bet because now this is what the movie's about, the big bet, and it's a square off between the two of them. Now, this scene, I remember we did several times. I'm not quite sure why. Um, one thing that's interesting is when you're working with two actors uh, supremely gifted at these two, they each have their own kind of way. Michael likes to do it in one or two takes. And Steve, which I support wholly, likes to explore a bit more. So what's, what you've got to decide when you're directing is not when Michael's great and not when Steve's great, but when they both bubble. And it's, it's a little hard for Michael when, when uh, Steve wants to go on a little bit, so keep him, his part fresh. And it's a little bit difficult for Steve when Michael feels pretty good about the first or second take and Steve wants to explore more. So this happens with every actor you deal with. And uh, fortunately, they got along so great, they, they were very patient with each other. If I win, you leave. All right, Freddy. Suppose we try this. We find a woman. This is the first time Glenn Headley will be introduced in the movie. Now, Glennie, uh, who's just a terrific actress, I didn't know who Glenn Headley was until uh, Donna Isaacson and uh, John Lyons, the casting people, brought her in. And I knew she was with Steppenwolf. And she was brought in in New York for casting, I think, twice or three times. And really, I mean, I've got to, I'd like to take credit for Glenn, which I will because I've made the decision. But really, it, I was pushed by Donna and John because they really recognized Glenn's uh, talent from what she'd done previously. I didn't know what she did previously. Uh, so uh, I was so happy, finally, because... Uh, uh, she, uh, she's really such a gifted performer. And again, this is a lovely hat that Mary, Merritt Allen had. Again, that, uh, for her, that was a very 1950s introduction. All these three characters were introduced in, individually. Remember, uh, Michael was introduced by the turn of the head. Steve was introduced by that push in the train. She's introduced with a hat going up and revealing herself. A very old-fashioned way to do it, and I did it very much on purpose to keep the old-fashioned tone of this movie so the $50,000 bet uh, could be understood between two men of honor instead of two, two guys maybe of this era. This was a reshoot. I remember uh, we shot this, and then I think, I'm, shot, I'm not sure if I was unhappy or Steve was unhappy, he asked me to do it again, whatever, but this was a reshoot we shot about three weeks after we shot the original one. I don't remember where this is. <laughs> it's been a long time. Again, those awnings were not lit that way. Michael Bauhaus lit them. Uh, the DP really has to make everything more beautiful than it is when you see it on location for the first time. Now, this is a sequence where Lawrence is trying to pull the same scam that he played on Barbara Harris earlier on in the movie, where he loses all his money and then the woman would take pity on him and follow him. Um, but obviously, in, in this scene, it doesn't work. Uh, and, um, and I love how Michael, just notice how delicately Michael plays this scene. He, 
he, he, he, just by the way he plays it, he knows he's, he's screwing up. And uh, he puts a, such a nice cover on. It's, it's really lovely. I'm not sure if we shot this gambling in the same s location as the previous gambling scene with Barbara Harris. I would say we probably did and probably changed the curtains in the back to make it look like a different location. I would think so. Because in film, obviously, if you got one gambling area, why rent all the equipment and do it twice? So I'm guessing that's what we did. Glenny's Dress, again, by Merritt Allen, is meant to look, I'm sorry to harp on this, but all these decisions are important to give that 19, kind of, a kind of 1950s feel to it. And there's a, there's a delicacy of Michael's performance, just covering the fact that he, he's in trouble now because he's supposed to lose. The entrance of Steve now is really interesting to me. You'll see Steve enter in a wheelchair in a moment because that's his way to get on to her. But you'll see that he, you just don't see him. Again, you hear him first and you hear people getting out of the way. And that's important for the comedy, I think, because see, it's about three or four seconds before you reveal and you're wondering, what the heck's going on? And I think that strengthens the comedy when you, when you see him. Of course, having, having Freddie, <laughs> this, this look is so great <laughs> of hate, of pure hate. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep cracking up like this. I know the director shouldn't, but I haven't seen this for so long. I just love it. I want to tell. I want to talk about what's going to happen here. It might be interesting. Uh, obviously, Steve is just doing great work here, as is Michael and, and Glenn. But you'll see when Steve exits, he tries to get out with his wheelchair at the point of exit, and you'll hear him knocking against Michael's chair, and you'll hear three knocks. Okay. Those knocks, those three knocks are important, but the third knock is even more important, comedically, I felt, when we did it. In the mix, for some reason, we only did two knocks, and I saw it, and I said, wait a second, where's that third knock? I don't think it's as funny without the third knock. And Orion uh, backed me up, and they said, okay, we'll do it, and they, we opened up the reel, redid it, and it cost $20,000 just to get that third knock. And yet, Comedically, it's important. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> after he uh, bets his medal, and uh, he'll he'll start exiting, and uh, I'll be quiet. There's Michael moving in. I'll be quiet while three knocks happen. I think there were three, but I do know that I had to redo one to make it, to what I felt was, uh, to make it really funny. Um, this is the exact location, I remember, that we shot the Barbara Harris scene because, see the plants there? Again, we have to do that. We can't all of a sudden get a new gambling casino because it's, it's just too expensive to bring in all. We have to rent all those tables, rent all the chairs, bring the extras in. So what we did on that night, as you do often in film, is you shoot one scene. Once you finish that, you have the actors 
get out of costume, put new costumes on, rehearse the new scene, and keep shooting with and mix the extras around, maybe even put new costumes on the extras. So it looks like another night. So um, it's just too expensive otherwise to, uh, to do two different locations and two different times. Now, I've got to talk about this next scene because this next scene, when Freddie is uh, telling his sad story right here <laughs> about why he can't walk. I remember that we were having, we were cracking up so much here that I'll point it out to you, when we're on a close-up of Steve and we're over the shoulder, in other words, we can see a bit of the back of Glenn and we see a close-up of Steve later on. Glennie had to close her eyes. So Steve was talking to her with her eyes closed because if she felt, she felt if she opened them, she would totally crack up. So, so Steve, on the close-up you'll see, is telling this ridiculous story to Glennie here. I think here, actually gets closer than this, but I think here also, her eyes are closed so she doesn't crack up. But in addition, I'm behind the camera and this story is cracking me up so much, I remember on one of the takes that I was crying and I couldn't see anything. So I just yelled cut and print. I had no idea what I had because I was cracking up so much and crying that tears were in my eyes and I just couldn't, uh, I had no idea what the performance was like. So it was in the dailies I first saw the performance. It was just, it was so much fun shooting this scene. And we won. How great. And in the excitement, we got separated. So we've got to this. <laughs> this is such a ridiculous story. And I think Danny Terrio uh, was a real guy. Uh, and he was known then. It made it funnier. Remember, Glenn's eyes are closed here because if she opens them, she will crack up because she couldn't get through a take. And now, of course, they're open on this side. <laughs> This was Captain Antibes, I believe, as a matter of fact. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful place. I'm sorry. One thing on this uh, exit of Steve, what's interesting is we were just shooting it, and Steve was supposed to, just supposed to wheelchair out, which is funny. But then uh, we were all set up, and I saw this, I think not only I, but Bauhaus, saw this... Uh, boat, this pleasure boat, this cruise boat in the distance. And we were saying, oh, come on, come on, let's, let's shoot it, let's shoot it, get some production value. And so you'll see this cruise boat in the distance. We did this in one take. Uh, and it's one of those things that uh, you pay for, usually, to get in the back of your shot. Uh, but uh, we just, Michael just scurried, and uh, we just got a nice little production value in the, in the background for free. I'll point that out to you in a second when, uh, when Steve exits. What do you mean by astronomical? Now he's going to look over in a moment, and I think actually it's not when he exits the boat is there. He'll look over in a moment, and he'll see, there he goes, he'll see two people dancing. And I think the boat is in that shot, actually. Yeah, way in the distance there. Actually, I remember, I remember it more evident than, than it is here. At least we got it. That's okay. And now, of course, Freddie is too upset to see people dancing, <laughs> and he, uh, he's wheeled out. 
are going up to my room right now, right to Dr. Schaffhausen. Oh, God! Uh, the, the thing about this movie is, I look at these scenes. For you, they're just scenes with actors. For me, they're just these warm memories of in the south of France for four months. I wish you hadn't written these things about now, me. Now, um, this is a set in Victorine Studios, and I think Roy did a really nice thing here. He, if you notice, there's really two different uh, uh, kind of pastel colors here. Very elegant, but uh, it, it made it more interesting to have it two the rooms two different colors than just one. It just kind of gives more depth when you see in the background. Um, <laughs> Steve gets up here and, and uh, thinks you won. But there's a scene coming up downstairs <laughs> uh, and where we cracked up so much we couldn't shoot. And for some reason, when she meets Dr. Schiffhausen, which is Michael, when Michael said to her, Janet, which her name is Janet, uh, Glennie just started cracking up and we just couldn't get shooting. And then Michael started cracking up. Then I started cracking up. We had to wait for an hour. We just had to wait for an hour for this to shoot this scene because nobody could go forward. We were laughing so much. Uh, and um, this, this, this German accent that Michael puts on is so spot on. It's uh, actually when we first talked to him about doing this movie, I had no idea if he could do a German accent or not. I mean, I saw this guy as a great dramatic actor, and he read the part. I didn't ask him to read. You don't, you don't ask people like Michael Caine to read for you, but he volunteered it, and he read this German accent, and I was amazed. So it just worked out just perfectly that, uh, uh, that Michael was, was Lawrence here and Schaffhausen. So anyway, this scene here looks like it was shot very professionally, which it was, but we just couldn't shoot for about an hour. About his fiance running off as a dancer. That's now, the they're going to go upstairs in a moment uh, to see Freddie, and there'll be a scene where Lawrence is whipping Freddie's knees or, or shins. And um, I remember very well Michael taking it and taking this, uh, I, I think it was, it was not a whip, but it was uh, something from a floral arrangement that felt like a whip. And hitting Steve in the rehearsal and I was saying, gee, you know, Michael, if, if, uh, if this is going to work, uh, I think we need to have a longer buildup. Uh, so um, the, way I, the way I viewed this scene was that the longer the buildup, the funnier the actual hit and pain reaction would be. Now, that's not necessarily true in all comedy because sometimes when you jump something, when you, when you don't wait and have a big buildup, but you really jump it and go fast, it, 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 it's funnier. So, it, you know, I just go by my instincts. And, and um, one thing I feel about comedy is that I never want to know what works comedically because once I know, it's going to be stale. So when I say these things about comedy, this is just how I experienced them in this movie and how my instincts 
uh, tell me it should go. But there's no rules. It's only how you feel and what makes you laugh. That's what it is. So um, this scene was a scene when I read it a year prior to shooting. Uh, just cracked me up, and I looked forward to doing it so much. When uh, Michael comes in here, he did a great thing, which is when he he comes in the room as Dr. Schiffhausen, and he gave a real look of hate, another second look of hate. That first look was in the in the gambling casino. And that was really cool of Michael, because I would have directed him just to go ahead and continue to be the phony Dr. Schiffhausen and keep up that facade. But he knew that he was clear to do it because Glenn was behind him, and so Glenn's character couldn't see him. But here's this little look of hate, <laughs> which is wonderful. And I would never have thought about that. That was straight from Michael. No. Let's have a look at those legs, shall we? Uh, now, this is part of the build-up I was talking to you about. Uh, instead of just hitting his knees, his legs, this is preparing the audience. Yes, sir. And the audience knows that Freddie's lying, and Lawrence knows it. And so, <laughs> so this is all part of the, the fun here is the preparation before the hit. Um, again, this is, uh, I think, Michael ad-libbing here. <laughs> Those are, of course, Steve's real legs and shins. However, you'll soon see when Michael actually hits him that a human being really can't take that much pain. So Matthew Mungel uh, made prosthetic shins to cover Steve's own shins. So when Michael, you'll see coming up, hits him extremely hard, uh, Steve doesn't feel it because it's uh, it's a very heavy material on top of his shins. Uh, otherwise, of course, Steve couldn't do it. We really, really, really stretched this whole thing out. It wasn't written like this. And there he is grabbing something from the floral arrangement. And again, I think that if we know some violence is about to come up <laughs> like this, the longer it takes to get there, I think comedically works better. So now we start with a little tap here, and these are phony shins here. No. Okay. <laughs> this is, this is Freddie pretending it doesn't hurt. So now we go to the second hitting. Now, again, that doesn't hurt because they're phony shins. But Steve, of course, has to pretend that it does hurt and then cover the fact that it does hurt. <laughs> now, here's another huge hit, and we know that he's getting ready for it, which makes it funny. <laughs> Thank God Steve was protected by Matthew's phony shins. Now, I asked Michael to really make a running jump, a running start, and go all the way back. So what's funny is not necessarily the action, but it's often the preparation for the action, and then now coming up the reaction, which is funny. <laughs> Whack. <laughs> so, so if we had just whacked him three or four times, it really wouldn't have been, to my, in my opinion, funny. And it would not have given Steve as much to play, which is really important. A guy as talented as Steve, you want to play pretending there's no pain. 
And uh, this is one of my favorite scenes, just because what we're what Steve's holding down. <laughs> running, jumping, shouting, screaming. Oh, my name isn't Doctor Emil Schaffhausen. And uh, I think actually Steve needed some glycerin in his eyes to make him cry here because, because, <laughs> of course, I was. We were cracking up doing this whole scene too. Again, I mean, it was just so funny to to have him hit so hard. Now, what's really interesting here for me is that I kind of took a big chance. See this? This is one camera uh, right here. I mean, there's no cuts whatsoever. Now, comedically, it works better having one camera. See, I haven't stopped. One master shot. The car drives up. He's carried out. The car drives up. They get in the car. If I played safe, I would have gotten a close-up of uh, a Steve coming up. I would have gotten a close-up of the car coming up. So if this, if that one shot didn't work, I was screwed. But it's much more satisfying to do all that in one shot, even though it's dangerous. This is a Dana Ivy. Um, fortunately, Dana happened to be in France when we cast her, so it all all worked out. I didn't recognize you for a moment. How wonderful to see you. Protector of the veld. This scene is broad, but, you know, because of the tone that was created, the conscious tone of the kind of sheen of the 50s, you really can go like this, I think, in this movie, as long as you're true, as long as you make a deal with the audience and say, you know, we're, in the very beginning, we're going to go to this tone. And that's what that whole necklace thing was about in the beginning also, to show the audience the tone of the movie. As long as you straight, stay true to that tone, then you're allowed to do a lot of stuff. The audience, I believe, will accept it. That's my opinion. Oh, this is my royal adjutant, General Benson. There's also an edge where you can't go beyond, and I will often say to Steve, you know, Steve, that was so brilliant, but so funny, but let's take it down 5% because it just was a little bit too broad, or, or 10%, and Steve was able to, to make that happen. Or I'll say to Steve, you know, that was too down. I, I, I think you can allow yourself to be broader comedically, and Steve trusts me to try that stuff, knowing full well that I, I shoot the stuff and have enough editing material to change it later on. Except for instance, that, that one sequence I told you about, that was a master shot, and that was live or die with that shot. This is that villa that I told you about that we found, and this is a, a, a night shot, and of course, none of this is lit. This is all Michael Bauhaus again, doing all the lighting. One thing you might notice is that here we are driving up to our villa, but we were not allowed to shoot inside the villa. We only had permission to shoot outside the villa. So therefore, we had our location scout go through other villas to find uh, a place that we could shoot in and also was appropriate to the film. So as you see, uh, you'll see them walking up to the door, but once you, once you cut inside in a moment, realize that's a whole different villa in a, an entirely different location, and probably, I think, in a different town. To hell. You'll see in a second there. Okay, that's, that's a different place. That's a whole different place. And again, I think we got this place in part uh, because that nice, uh, the, the distance Freddie had to travel for that wheelchair. Now, you'll see them walk up here. 
<laughs> You'll see them walk up here, and of course, Freddie can't come up. As they walk around this staircase, we've seen the outside already, which is the villa. We've seen the inside, which is another place. And now you'll see the music room as they walk up. And once you see the music room, that was a build. That was a set that Roy Walker built on the stage of the Victor Victorine Studios in Nice. So it often is the case where you just cannot find what you want. So we found the outside of the villa, we found the inside. We couldn't find the music room that would fit for what we wanted. So as they walk in here, they're walking in probably two weeks later to a set. Oh my goodness. Isn't this beautiful? And it's beautiful too. I mean, uh, Roy and his, his team really sold it. They had to, you know, all those things they probably rented. You have to, it was, it was, uh, they made the empty room, four walls, and they brought in the big picture back there and the couches and uh, the couch and everything and the piano, the harpsichord and the harp. So that, that's all rented and put in. And then when the scene is finished, they got to bring it all back uh, while I'm off shooting other scenes. I heard the music and I pulled my. Again, this is broad. But I think it holds. I think it works because of the tone. And the tone is so important in any picture because the tone will, is kind of an agreement within the audience, as I said before. If you set the right tone, you can do a lot of stuff. If you set the right tone and then you change tones, then it kind of throws the audience, I think. No, he can't see us. This is terrible. Now, here we, there's, there's a scene coming up. <laughs> where uh, uh, Freddie is in the wheelchair and he pretends that he has lost control of the wheelchair and he is going a mile a minute down the steps falling, okay? Now, what I had wanted to do, this is beautiful here, it's such, it was such a delight to shoot here. What I had wanted to do was I had wanted to actually uh, show the wheelchair going out uh, of control and Steve on it. And we had uh, a fellow friend of mine uh, and Bernie's bud come over uh, from the States. We flew him over, and he was the uh, uh, stunt supervisor. And he told us how he could rig a pipe and how he would he could make the whole thing work where it would be almost like a roller coaster having the uh, the wheelchair go down these steep steps. Um, and for some reason, it, it, it wasn't working as well to me. Besides, Bernie was saying it's extremely expensive, Frank. It's going to be about $150,000 to make this whole thing work. So I was trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I went to Steve, and I kind of casually mentioned to Steve my problem, that it was just too expensive. And he says, well, just pretend it's a, uh, I'm out of control. <laughs> so just by Steve saying that, it was number one. Uh, it, 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 it saved one hundred fifty thousand dollars. But number two, it was funny, because I think if I had gone for my original idea, it would have looked slapsticky. It would look like um, Max Senate Chase. And sometimes what you want to do is you want to imagine, set it up, and imagine what's happening. And that's what Steve did for me. He said, "I can pretend that it's happening. I can, in other words, not Steve, but Freddie." can try and sell it as a pretend. And so that's what's going to happen here in a second, you'll see. Sorry that was a long buildup, but it, it, I remember very, very clearly that uh, by Steve 
saying that, it saved us money and made it funnier. Now there's what I was gonna show, and here's what happens. He looks back for the last longing look. Sorry, one more look. <laughs> Trying to sell his forlorn life. And now. So now Freddy pretends he's out of control. It's not Steve, it's Freddy the character pretending he's out of control. And what's happening is he's running down with a wheelchair, pretending he's out of control. See? That is a funnier shot pretending than it would have been if I had paid $150,000 and had a whole track made and actually seen him out of control. And that's, you know, that's sometimes the most simple answer saves the day, and that's what Steve did. Now, this is a beautiful little cove here, a sandy cove with, um, right here, see the sandy cove here? It's beautiful, never existed. Never existed. We, Roy Walker, we saw this area and it was all rocky. And Roy said, I can make it happen. I said, how? How can you make a beautiful sandy cove happen? He trucked in all that sand, trucked it all in. That cove never existed. And then he, I guess he packed it. I don't know what he did, but I came down there and instead of all a huge rocky place with nothing, it was all a beautiful sandy cove. It's beautiful. Uh, and of course, he made uh, everything else work behind it too. He brought in a lot of shrubbery because it wasn't there was no greenery there. It was all rock, and that's all Roy's work there and all his team. Mm -hmm. Just as I thought. On a sound level, the beach scene is interesting because when I recorded this. The waves were very loud, and I knew it. My sound man told me that. But I had to go on. I, I had no other choice. I had to keep shooting because of the schedule. And so when we got to post-production, we really had a problem because the sound of the waves were continually over the, the, uh, the two actors. And, and it was very disconcerting, and it was also covering some of the dialogue at times. Uh, and so what they did, they really worked very hard on it. I think it's called notch filtering. They, they, they were able to clear enough of the ocean that I, that I could understand them. Now, what I did to be safe is I looped them. So I, I brought Glenn and I brought Steve in to loop. And loop, or ADR, means additional dialogue recording, which means that Steve and Glenn will look at this picture in the studio and they will... Uh, say the words exactly as they're said to fit the, the, the mouths. And so then I will have a clean track of their dialogue, okay? And then what we would have done is we would have had a clean track of the dialogue and we would have then added the sound effects of the ocean, the effects of the ocean, and then we would have married them together. But we would have had a clean track. What's interesting here is that even though I did that work with them, I didn't need it because the notch filtering worked. So we used the original. I remember how hot it is here. The whole crew uh, were boiling, and uh, they were taking off. The, it, you know, this is it's rare to have a shoot like this. They were taking off their shoots and jumping in the ocean. It was just uh, 
it, it was it was great. It was very warm, and it's very hard also when you see Michael walking here and Glenn. Happens also with Steve, every actor. When you're in, when you're like this, you have reflectors right in your eyes, and so it's extremely difficult for the actor to to work because you have this big white reflector that reflects the light back in their face, so the camera can pick it up properly. And so while Michael is talking, you know while Glenn is talking, while Steve is walking in a scene, remember, it's very hard. And what they'll do often is they'll to combat it, they'll close their eyes and look up at the sun, not with their eyes open, definitely with their eyes closed, to prepare themselves for having that, that bright light in their eyes, and it helps them a little bit. Now, this is a little montage sequence, uh, again, with uh, Lawrence in control. We just wanted to show how, how uh, Freddie was really uh, odd man out here, and that... Uh, what he thought was going to be a, a help in getting her uh, turned out to be a hindrance, which is the wheelchair. How much of this can he stand? Don't you now, this little discotheque never existed either. Uh, we scouted around, and they showed me this derelict little uh, place, and it was on the beach. This is right on the beach uh, in Joalapin. That's it, in Joalapin. And so, um, again, Roy Walker made it all into a discotheque with... Uh, Actually, it used to be an old one. It's derelict, but he made he made um, it all happen again uh, and made it brand new. <laughs> the uh, two actors in the back here, uh, I think I cast them in uh, London, and we brought them over. And uh, again, audio-wise, we had a very loud soundtrack here, <laughs> and kind of a I felt a Euro. Uh, a Euro pop thing, which I hate, but that's why I did it. Uh, I, I put it in here, and the the people dancing are not dancing to the music; they are they are pretending there's music. Because when you shoot it, and there's no music here either, when you shoot it, you got to pretend there's music. But if you really play the music while the dialogue is going, you can't hear the dialogue. So we put the music in later, and so those people, you give them the rhythm, and then they they're dancing and dancing, we stop the music, and while the dialogue is going on, they keep dancing in silence, okay? So everybody here is actually dancing in silence so we can hear Michael uh, and Glennie talk. Same thing with the uh, two sailors and Steve. Again, this scene is uh, there in, in the story to, to um, set up something that happens later on, you'll see. I mean, this is kind of a, a new moment in the movie where another adventure occurs with, uh, with Michael and Glenn and, and Steve. So we're setting up these two sailors here as two guys that help Steve because they feel sorry for him. And you'll find out later on how that backfires on him. Shit. What do you reckon? Hey, oi. There's a transport plane leaving for Honduras at one o'clock tonight. How'd you like your friend to be on it? Remember the location where I said we did the European and the U.S. version um, of the women on the beach? Actually, this was right next to that location. This is just 15 feet away, this discotheque. The uh, next scene coming up here, I think it's Captain Teeb, I'm not sure. Again, all these cars we brought in ourselves, uh, all, all that stuff you have to do in film. And um, 
I'm like, that Freddie's just totally stuck there uh, because of his lie. Now, this scene here, Glennie was, had to play this very innocently and very, very sweetly. It's a very important scene, actually, to really sell this character, this, the sweetness of this character, because Michael, of course, has to be taken by her. He has to be, he has to believe that he made a mistake, that, my God, this woman doesn't have a lot of money. She just won a contest, and uh, she's an amazing person. I'm not used to people like this. I can't take her money. So this is a very important scene emotionally for Michael, Michael's character. Uh, and Glennie uh, plays it beautifully innocent here, just so, so natural and, and innocent. It's, uh, it, 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 it's a very important scene to, to sell this whole, this whole thing with Glenn. Now, Michael, Michael says he can cry on cue, and he, his tears well up, but, uh, and he can. Uh, he is amazing. But uh, he's also very, he's a very sensitive and caring actor. So I think when he says that, I think he, he, uh, it's a good way for him to cover the, his, how sensitive and, and, and caring a person he is. Uh, you'll see that his, his eyes tear up a little bit here uh, because he's never met anyone like this before, this woman. And of course, this now, when he realizes that she's really not the soap heiress, that she really doesn't have money. Now this takes us into an entire new, a new area where he wants to call off the deal. And that's really smart of um, uh, Shapiro and Henning, the original writers. I think this is the same structure. Because if it was only about the bet for the entire movie, it would have gotten a bit too linear. And now all of a sudden it's changed. And now the audience's interest peaks a little bit because things have changed all of a sudden we've gotten to a different direction. Now, that's, this I remember very well. This is Cannes. Um, we uh, had one night shoot in Cannes. It's the only time we shot there. And they were just getting ready for the Cannes Film Festival, and they had all these tacky billboards all over the place. I had no idea that the Cannes Film Festival uh, turned so tacky. <laughs> uh, we had to avoid them, so fortunately at nighttime we didn't have to see them. Uh, but this was along, I forgot what they call that street, but this is all along the ocean here. As a matter of fact, while I'm talking about that, we had a cast party for this movie, which was the best, most beautiful cast party. <laughs> it was right on the ocean. Uh, we had a tent right on the sand, uh, and um, the ocean was uh, five feet from the edge of the tent. Uh, and we had music, and uh, it was a wonderful cast party. It was summertime, and the band was playing. It was beautifully romantic. Great, great cast party. Um, I know that's not about filmmaking, but that's also the fun of it after you, uh, after you finish the film. Now, here's a new bet, okay? Which again is why it's so smart for, for these writers to do this. The new bet now, now is that Freddie can make love to her first. And Michael is not betting because he cares. Uh, but I think he's betting against Freddie now. So now here are the two sailors. And I remember that the younger, the, the, uh, the white sailor here, I think I cast him, and, but he's not that experienced. And he was very good. But I think when Michael finally came up to him on rehearsal, it, it, it kind of 
surprised him. That it's almost as if he was saying, holy cow, I'm working with Michael Caine. Because he didn't get his lines quite right, but he eventually did. He did, did a good job. Again, I think this is uh, straight from the, uh, from the old structure of the old script. That, of course, was my, not Michael Caine. That was a stunt person. I didn't want to take Michael and, uh, and heave him in the back of a truck. I think I, I have a bit more respect for him than that. Uh, he wouldn't do it anyway. <laughs> okay, now, this is the whole cat and mouse thing, the back and forth. Now, um, Freddy thinks he's won. Of course, when Freddy thinks he wins, he gets real cocky. I thought Dr. Schilfhausen took you home. Yeah, well, he did. I couldn't sleep. I, I love this scene because, it, and I love most scenes when they're like this, which is, it's not what it's about. about what you think it's about is not really what it's about. You'll see at the end. The and I really like it for that. Yes, he told me the same thing. Now, Janet? undoubtedly, we shot this scene the same time we shot the scene prior when they were in this hotel room. You try and again, just like the gambling casino, you try and shoot the scenes uh, when all the lighting and the crew and everything all is all set up uh, so you don't have to come back to this. I have a feeling uh, we had just completed the previous scene where uh, Freddie comes in and, and Glennie's character, uh, Janet, goes down looking for Schufhausen. I, I believe that's the case. I think I love you too, Freddy. And you will walk. Here. What are you doing? Now, stand up and walk to me. There's one moment here where uh, Steve on, uh, and I both realized something, that he had a, uh, he had a line and his attitude was like Jerry Lewis. And we both said, hey, you know, that's like, that's like Jerry Lewis. And we both said, hey, you know what? It is, but it's funny. So you're aware that you owe, you know, that you owe certain things to previous, uh, previous comedians. And this one moment that I'll try and, try and point Come it out on. to you. Come on. Let go. You know, so much of this is made in the rehearsal. I mean... Not that we rehearse and then he does, it, he does it exactly, but we rehearse and what I like to do is I like to rehearse but leave it raw. Get it to the point that I know what he's doing essentially, that the director of photography knows essentially his blocking so he knows where the, where the light should go, that Glenn also knows essentially what Steve's going to do. But then you leave it raw so you don't over-rehearse and then new things can be discovered. Uh, and I'm sure he did this take different every time. Keep trying. Go over there. Uh, one thing you notice about this is Steve is wearing jeans, which <laughs> we talked about. And Gene said, you know, Steve says, you know, I, I never wear jeans, but Freddie would wear jeans. So uh, uh, he wears jeans. <laughs> now, this area here, it's interesting how to shoot something like this. Oh, this, this is the area I'm talking about, Jerry Lewis. Uh, and not that it's exactly like it, but it has, it's the same kind of tone. But it's interesting shooting comedy because how do you tell this joke coming up? And I was thinking about that. What is the best way to tell this joke <laughs> that's coming up here? And I chose this, which is a reveal, a slow reveal. It's entirely possible I could have gotten this from the original bedtime story. I don't know. But if I did, then that's okay because it's probably the best way to reveal 
Dr. Schiffhausen, which is this little pan over you'll see. I could have cut to him, you know, I could have uh, pushed into him, I could have done a lot of stuff. I just felt for some reason that that was the best way for the comedy. Who knows what's best, but that's what I thought. Yeah, it is funny about that because uh, how the um, how best to shoot a, something for comedic effect. I never know. I never ever know what's best. All I do is go by instinct. Another director could shoot it another way, and it could be just as funny. Who knows? Or funnier. I never got on it. There were six sailors at the back of that truck. Remember, I told you when the two sailors in the discotheque that. It, that uh, Freddie's choice of trying to go in a wheelchair to get sympathy is going to work against him. Well, this is where it's going to work against him. This is why it's structured so well and written so well uh, from the, with the original writers, uh, because once you see who's in here, you'll see why uh, Freddie is in trouble, because they knew Freddie previously in the wheelchair, and now they see that he's walking. So it's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy, but boy, you know, it's really hard to structure comedy. And uh, they did a, the original writers did a great job of structuring. Just amazing. Have a look at this. Hi. Hey. Would you take care of my friend till I get back? The next uh, scene, I believe, is Michael uh, as Lawrence getting Janet out of town. So that's right. So. Um, she doesn't get any more trouble, and nobody takes advantage of her. And again, how Glenn played this was very important, because uh, she had to be sweet and innocent still to sell, to sell the ending of the movie. Very important. This was at, I believe, what airport was this? Was it Nice? I forgot. Keeps a feet. You kidding? Yes. This is her going away. Now, when Michael comes back to the hotel, there's a joke that uh, you'll see, and Steve thought of this joke, is when he's leaning, when Steve is leaning against the door jam. You'll see in a moment. Uh, this is, again, how Steve contributes, because we really didn't have a joke. We just kind of had Michael find Freddie. And it's Steve who uh, made this happen, that there was a little bit more excitement, a little fun to the scene by the joke of why he's leaning against the door jam. Listen, I gotta go. Take care. See you. I'm gonna... <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> Bye. Well, you seem to be having a very nice time. Had a great time. Could you hand me that super glue solvent, please? And again, Steve would come up to me and say, hey, does this work? And I said, I'd say, yeah, try it, you know? But just that little, that joke makes so much difference in that scene, because otherwise it'd just be a scene of Michael getting ready. That's all it would be. It is funny seeing Steve wear jeans, but <laughs> I look at it, and for him too. Usually when actors point up to something, it's wise to let the audience know what they're pointing, but I, I didn't want to spend the money and time on trying to get an airplane up in the sky. It's just too big a deal. So the, that's where sound effects come in so well, because that's... That can tell so many stories without having to see it, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to be uh, 
uh, repeating myself about this comedic structure. But, you know, it's really difficult to write comedy, really difficult. And you get craftsmen uh, like Henning and Shapiro uh, who did this. Uh, it's pretty amazing because right now the bet is supposedly over. Freddie lost. She's gone. We're sure of that. And so obviously the writer had to think, how, you know, the story's not over. How can I keep going? And uh, it's it just... It, it, it's, it's just another surprise in a whole series of structural surprises that uh, I think in part makes this movie work because now all of a sudden we see that she is back and she never went and that starts another part of the story. So it's, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really rare to find uh, comedic writing that just keeps on you know, having new surprises all the time like this. I know the doctor said it might endanger your recovery, but I, I had to see you. You see, I really am in love with you. And again, I, I, I reiterate, uh, Glennie playing it as innocent and sweet like this is so important for the ending. Uh, and that's why she did it, is to, to, to really sell uh, this character as, as we think she is right now. Now that you're walking, you now I had a, I had a shot that looked straight down uh, at the uh, at the two of them in bed, and I wanted that shot real badly. And Michael Bauhaus says I really wouldn't use it, so uh, and I decided heck with it, I'm going to do it. And so I, I put the camera way up on top here over them, so it looked straight down, and it took about a couple of hours to set it up and rig it and everything. Uh, and Michael was right, I never used it. <laughs> you know, it's not what you shoot, it's what you use. That's the most important thing. So you make mistakes, you always make mistakes, and then you, you, uh, you just see in editing what you use. Uh, I'm gonna jump ahead for a second uh, about post-production, because it's something that even if I'm talking about a DVD, I'm talking about the scenes, and I don't talk about post-production enough. One thing with a comedy, and again, I, I talk like I'm some expert at comedy, and I don't see myself as that at all. I hope I'm, I never know what I'm doing, because it's, it's more exciting to not know. But in my experience with comedies, put it that way, one of the most important things in post-production is preview process. I know many people think, oh, geez, you got to go to the preview process and have... Uh, uh, you know, you have the audiences tell you what's funny. It's not really like that. I think the previews are really, really valuable. And I had a preview process with this, like I have other movies. I remember I did In and Out, and I think I had about 12 or 13 previews. And you start with, in previews, you start with putting the kitchen sink in. You know you're long, but you don't know what's funny. You don't always know what's funny because you've been working on this thing for six months to a year. And you can't see the forest for the trees. So the audience is there to react, not to tell you, but to honestly react. Now, if the audiences react always the same way, I've got to listen to them. If there's some audiences react one way and some audiences the other, then I want to go with my own instincts. But previews are extraordinarily valuable to hone down your movie to what really works. So this movie, I know, I, I didn't cut any scenes because it, it worked pretty good. I cut within the scenes to make each scene work as economically as possible. Uh, but I couldn't have done that without the preview process. So you start with 
big cuts and you get down and you get down. And then towards the end of the preview process, whether it's five previews or 10 previews or 15 previews, whatever you can do, and it's a luxury to have that many previews. But by the time you're at the end of it, you, you kind of work on individual jokes or, or, or three frames here or 10 frames there, uh, uh, which is 10 frames is like not even half a second. So that's just the post-production process, which I, I rarely talk about when I do these DVDs, but it, it's, it's really, really important. <laughs> and then what happened was I, now, I I've told you in the past uh, hour, hour and a half, whatever it's been, uh, how important it's been for Glenny here to play innocent. And that will pay off now in the airport. And so this, this scene... If there's any scene that you start questioning her, it's the end of the scene where she gets the 50,000. I think half the audience knew what was going on at this point, and half the audience still bought into it. So it's a key scene that way. We tried really to convince as much of the audience as we could, knowing full well we could never convince the whole audience that she was still innocent. Once she got her hands on that money, that 50,000, half the audience said, okay, we're on to it. She's a con lady, okay? So we tried our best, and uh, half, half, the, half the time, we, I think we got successful in this. Now, remember I told you about the ending? Well, consider the exterior airport the whole ending. That is what Steve and I met for about half a dozen times at the Universal Restaurant, uh, fortunately, the the, uh, the company was paying for the dinners, and they were very good. The Universal Restaurant in uh, in Nice. Uh, that's what we met there for. Is that exterior airport ending? That's what I'm talking about, essentially. Uh, although there was some talk, certainly about what built up to that ending, but the real ending was in that airport. And now, what was really scary, and thank God it worked, at this Beaulieu-Saint-Mer airport. What was really scary is the sun was going down. And we only had this day to shoot. And we didn't have it written. And so it got to the point where we, you know, we were saying, Michael was saying to Steve, okay, you say this. And Steve says, okay, you say this. And, and thank God it worked, you know. Um, actually, we're a little bit early here. I, I, that'll be a bit later. What's happening here now? Excuse me, what's happening here now? First of all, see that reflection? Uh, Michael saw that reflection. I said, geez, that's great. Let's stay on it. So instead of cutting to her, we see her in that reflection. Isn't that beautiful? That's Michael's idea. So instead of cutting a reverse to her, we see her already in that reflection. It's just beautiful. I told you in the previous scene, we tried to sell to the audience that she was innocent. But once she took the 50,000, that the audience knew she was a con artist. Well, this scene here was created by Steve and I in, and, and with the help of Michael and Glenn to sell the audience that they were wrong, that she's not a con artist, that she's giving the $50,000 back, okay? This is part of the dinner in the Universal <laughs> restaurant. So to those audience members who thought she was a con artist, now we just want to put a little seed of doubt in, in, in their heads, okay? This uh, airplane we uh, rented, you got to rent all this stuff, and uh, uh, now this whole thing was what was created during the months of shooting, this whole ending. Um, and the jackal, we will find out, of, as you know, having seen this movie, the jackal is Janet. And 
when the plane takes off here, there's a really neat move. Again, that's Michael Bauhaus's move. You'll see Freddie trying to follow the plane. But there's a really neat uh, move. We could have just been on sticks, which means a tripod in movie terms. We could have been on a tripod and just panned the plane over to the left and have it go out into the, into the air. But you'll notice here, when the plane takes off, Michael Bauhaus laid a track. And we kind of panned one way and tracked the other way. And it was, it's a really nice move. Um, I, I remember it, uh, and it's, it's been 13 years ago. Uh, you shouldn't be aware of it, because the audience shouldn't be aware of this stuff. But, uh, but I like it. OK, here, uh, here's uh, Michael and Steve. And this is where they were talking about, you say this, you say that. And, and we were so lucky this worked, because this sun was going down, and we were losing the day. Hey, there's my clothes. <laughs> Freddy is so dense. <laughs> Hello, boys. It was fun. I'll miss you. Love, Janet, the jackal. P.S. I'm keeping the money. Is that wrong? Michael, actually, uh right there made up his mind to laugh and say oh she's wonderful and i said michael hold it back the more you hold back and we don't know what you feel the better it is and he uh, he agreed with me fortunately so he's holding back his emotions right now he's being neutral we don't know what he feels anger what we have no idea and there he's letting go i think that works better always delaying things often not not always often it helps now this is this little move which is nice see we're panning to the left we're moving to the right Panning to the left, the track is laid to the right. So it's a real nice move Michael did. We get the two in the foreground, and yet we still see the plane going up. So it's an opposite move. Track, right, pan, left. Now this one here, I'm kinda, I kind of like this because, I, again, I took a chance. Well, it's not that much of a chance because I covered myself, but I did this all from their backs. I went ahead and played it safe and shot this scene uh, around the front of them and saw uh, and shot, shot Michael and shot Steve so I could in editing go ahead and use it I didn't want to and I never did fortunately I think it's much more elegant just to see the backs of their uh, of their bodies and and sense that they are loners now and they they're loners who lost but also they both miss this woman and I think it's more of a plaintive kind of scene from the back uh, instead of going in on their faces right now. Now, this ending in part worked because of, I said earlier on, Glennie's acting ability. Well, in our exploration trying to find an ending of this movie, Steve said to me, gee, you know, you should listen to Glennie's uh, uh, Long Island accent. It's really terrific. And I did. And then that kind of spurred us uh, to, to give... Glenn, that second character of this Long Island woman uh, who is leading this tour of rich people. Uh, you'll see in a moment. See, this is I really hung on this th thing a long, long time, and I love taking a chance like that. I love a long master shot like that. And uh, it's wise to cover yourself, but I'm sure glad I didn't, uh, I didn't use the cover. I didn't use the close-ups. So in a moment, you'll... Uh, They'll stand up. Boy, I didn't know it was this long. 
That's great. <laughs> I love master shots like this. Now, in a moment, you'll see Glenn come up with a group of rich people, and she's pretending to be uh, a uh, Long Island uh, a lady who's, uh, who's directing this tour, but, um, or the group of rich people. Uh, and you also see that Michael, I asked Michael to do a different character, and, and he came up with a terrific character just on the spot here, an Australian character you'll see, and I really love that. It wasn't just a voice, it was kind of a character. And I love that fra the fact that, that Janet outsmarts Freddy here, and Freddy has to be mute, and it's so funny because, you know, it just puts control in her, <laughs> in her hands so much. You'll see in a second. We rented that boat again. Uh, had to bring it all there just for that shot. Isn't she great? When we uh, took publicity stills, we made sure not to show her so we wouldn't give the ending away. That's Louis Zorch, a wonderful actor. And uh, Glennie's just got a, such a great character there. And she, what's lovely about this scene is not only is she, she's taking a big chance, but she's testing these two guys, saying, hey, you know what? Are you as good as I am? And are you as good as I think? If you are, you'll go with me on this one. And she's just waiting to see if they are. <laughs> and she knows how Freddie can really screw things up, and that's what I like when she makes up in the last second that he's mute. Now, here's the Australian character, and she's just waiting. Are you going to do it or not, guys? Are you going to be with me? Are you smarter than I am, or are you smart as I am, or what? Make up your mind. She's great. Good day, Nikos. How's it going? And he makes up his mind. He's in the con. And now, Freddy, <laughs> who's lost, he doesn't know what the hell's going on, wants to be in the con too, but she makes damn sure <laughs> that he doesn't have a chance to screw it up. I love that. And that was Steve's idea. Now, I want to tell you something about this ending. The way this movie ends is them going arm in arm, you'll see in a moment, uh, up towards the villa. Now, I shot that once, and I thought, holy cow, that is so corny. I really hate corny endings like this. So I said to Bernie, Bernie, I know it's expensive, but I, I think it's too corny. It's just way too corny. Can we reshoot it, please? So I went back and reshot it about a month later, uh, waiting for the right weather and everything, you know? And so we shot it in such a way that it wasn't, she didn't lock arms. It was the locking arms that bothered me, that here we are, uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland going in to do a show, and I thought, oh, God, the audience is going to hate this. Well, we reshot it, and what you see here is the original one, because the second one was not warm enough. So it was really interesting that the audience who really loved the original, the locking arms. So I was wrong, because they cared for the characters enough that this works. If they didn't care for the characters, it wouldn't work. But it's not according to them because they've cared for these three characters through the entire process. Anyway, uh, you know, I hope I haven't been uh, uh, too self-aggrandizing here, but I, uh, I just saw this movie here and I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing this for the first time in a long time and I'm just enjoying it so much. <laughs> so anyway, I thank everybody who's been part of the movie and I uh, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it too. Mm -hmm.